0: Okay, so let's start where we ended last time, which was dealing with um, Fourier transforms (coughs) for situations which have some significance in optics. And this example that we worked out last time was an aperture. We said that because we can consider this aperture as some function of y, here it's a function that transmits none of the light outside of this aperture, and it transmits all of the light inside the aperture. So we could write this as a function of y. The Fourier transform of that tells us that there has to be a... um, frequency component in the y direction, a spatial frequency component, a value for k y in the y direction that has some distribution that looks like this. And because each frequency component in the y direction, each value for k y propagates at a different angle towards the screen, the light that's seen on the screen is all the different frequency components over here spread out as a function of position. And so that uh, Fourier transform of this function of the mask produces itself on the screen as the intensity distribution of the light. Okay, and this is the, the uh, diffraction pattern for a single slit which you can work out in other ways but um, it's also the Fourier transform of a top hat function. So another example that's very common in optics where we have a top hat function and we have to consider the Fourier transform of it is a pulse so here's an optical pulse it has some sinusoidal oscillation but it turns on abruptly and then turns off abruptly and so in space if this is a a photograph of the electric field as a function of position um, I've drawn it with a length of two L, or we could describe that as a time. A time of two uh, L over c would be the time it takes this pulse to travel that distance. Then we can describe the amplitude of this pulse by essentially a top hat function. At values less than L, has an amplitude given by sinusoidal oscillation. At values Above L, it's 0. And so we can ask, what are the Fourier transform coefficients? The sine transform coefficient and the cosine transform coefficient for this pulse. And so we need to integrate from, that should be minus L to plus L. That's the only region of space where the function exists. Here's the value of the function, and we'll multiply it by cosine of kx and integrate all over all of x to get the amplitude of the cosine term functions. Okay, So we have to integrate a constant times cosine times cosine. So we can look up in a trig reference what the cosine of A times the cosine of B is. And we can express that as the cosine of the sum times the cosine of the difference of the arguments times one half. So I've pulled the one half out front. Where is e naught oh. squared?
1: Oh, uh,
0: that's a mistake. I can either pull the e0 out, or I can leave it in. And I did both. And I think there's another mistake here, that there should be a plus sign right here. Cosine a, cosine b is this term plus this term. So when I integrate cosine, I get sine over the argument, or the the term in front of x. So here's the sine divided by the argument. And now I've divided by L and multiplied by L so that the term in the denominator will be the same as the argument of sine. So I can express this as a sink. So I can do that for this term, and I can do it for this term over here. The only difference is that one is k naught minus k, one is k naught plus k. And I'm evaluating these at uh, plus L and minus L. So when I evaluate sine at plus l, and then I subtract sine evaluated at minus l, I just get twice the value. So I get a factor of two out here that cancels out that one half. Okay. So this expression is the integral of this expression, and I can write this sine of an argument divided by the argument as sinc. So this is my functional form for the A coefficients. And if I plot this, it's got this sinc function centered at uh, k naught equals minus k and centered at k naught equals plus k. So it would be a sinc function down here and a sinc function up here. And what it tells me is that this wave pulse that I've got is made up of waves traveling backwards and waves traveling forwards. So the sine of k tells me forwards or backwards. And there's some distribution of the different frequency components that have to be added up to produce this square pulse in time. Now, if you consider what I started with, I started with just this picture of the wave train at an instant in time. And so if I just take a picture of a traveling wave, um, there's no way to tell whether this pulse is moving to the right or whether it's moving to the left. Which is why the math doesn't know whether it should have a positive k or a minus k. If that's actually a pulse that's moving in one direction, then I can neglect for example the backwards going terms and say that the forward-going pulse is made up of this distribution of k vectors. So I can look at, for example, the width of this central lobe. And when the difference in k values times l is pi, then sine of pi is 0. So when the difference in k is equal to pi over L, this transform will fall off to 0. So this point is k naught plus pi over L. This is k naught minus pi over L. And the width then is 2 pi over L. That's the width in k space. And from c equals omega over k, I can say omega is ck. So if the width in k space is 2 pi over L, then the width in frequency space is 2 pi c over L. So there's a distribution of frequencies that need to combine to produce this square pulse. I have a question before, before you go on about When you go from uh, the sine to the sink, how yeah. do you, well, I guess it's really the line above to line with it. From k here to here. here. How did you get the k plus k from the integration, I get a k not plus k on the bottom. L. I don't. I don't get the l. Um, but you can multiply by l over l. But I divided by l and I multiplied by l. Okay. okay so I, I set that up so that the denominator had the same form as the numerator. And so I know the shape is going to look like a sinc function, and I know its magnitude is going to be e not l. I'm going to do the peak there. So let me zoom in on one of these sinc functions. The width in space is 2 pi over l. The width in time, then, is 2 pi c over l. But l over c, l is the length of the pulse. Actually, it's half the length of the pulse. And traveling at a speed of c, that represents a pulse duration of t. And actually, yeah, so T is actually half the pulse duration, just like L is half the pulse length. Okay, so we can relate the expression for the width in frequency to the duration in time for this pulse. We'll show that it obeys Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. So we have a value for delta k of 2 pi over L, a value for delta x, that's the length of the pulse, of 2 L. And so 2 pi over L times 2 L is 4 pi. And similarly, if we express this in terms of this the temporal frequency and the pulse duration. The temporal frequency was 2 pi over t. The pulse duration was 2t, so their product is 4 pi. So these relationships obey the Heisenberg uncertainty relationship, which says that the product of these quantities has to be greater than or equal to 1 half. And so you can see there's a numerical factor by which these differ. And that numerical factor essentially is a function of how we define this this width. This width in frequency space we've defined as the width of this first central lobe. If we defined it as the full width half max, for instance, we'd get a different numerical factor. So the exact value of this quantity here depends on how we define the, uh, the width in frequency space. If this relationship holds, if this equality holds, then we say that the pulse is transform-limited. And in this case, this pulse was not transform-limited. And so we can use this relationship to estimate, without doing the full Fourier transform and looking at the, the, uh, the width of the spectral function, we can just estimate using the Heisenberg uncertainty relationship what the bandwidth of a pulse is. So for example, a Q-switched laser has a pulse that has a duration of 50 nanoseconds. Now, that pulse is probably not a, uh, a top hat function. It doesn't turn on abruptly and turn off. It's more of a smooth turn on and turn off. But it has some width that we characterize as 50 nanoseconds. So the transform limited bandwidth. Then we can find as one over 50 nanoseconds. So one over 50 nanoseconds is 3.2 megahertz. I said one over. It's actually it's actually uh, from delta omega delta t equals one half. That's a requirement for being transform limited. We usually express bandwidth in terms of the frequency delta f not delta omega So the bandwidth is actually 1 over delta t divided by 4 pi. So there's a numerical factor to consider there as well. For delta t is 50 nanoseconds. This works out to 3.2 megahertz. And what it means is our laser that we typically think of as having a well-defined frequency actually has a spread in frequencies. And in this case, 3.2 megahertz is the bandwidth of the laser. Uh, I guess I'm using the 1 approximation to calculate the 3.2 so this value of 3.2 megahertz is calculated using the rough approximation that delta omega delta t is equal to 1 so the longer the pulse the narrower this bandwidth can be and the more closely this can approximate a single frequency laser Okay, so this concept of um, pulse width is useful. This pulse width and this uh, frequency bandwidth is useful for describing the bandwidth of pulsed lasers. But it's also useful for describing CW sources as well. Um, Let me skip this slide for now. For a CW source where the wave train is only coherent for some length of time, and then there's some discontinuity in the wave train, and so the phase of the wave train gets randomized, and then it oscillates sinusoidally for some length of time before the phase gets randomized again. We can think of this as a series of pulses. Each pulse is coherent, and in this case, each pulse has a different pulse length. But we could describe, for example, the average pulse length of these coherent pulses and use them to find out what the bandwidth would be for a source that has that pulse length. Okay, so here if if tau is the length of time over which a pulse is coherent, then the, the length of this pulse train in space is the speed of light times tau given by this relationship here. We call that the coherence length. So tau is the coherence time. It's the, typical time. it's the time over which a typical pulse is coherent. The coherence length is the length of a typical pulse train. And so the bandwidth, delta F, of a pulse of length tau is roughly 1 over tau We'll define the bandwidth as 1 over tau. And that lets us express the coherence length in terms of the bandwidth. Coherence length is c times tau. Tau is 1 over the the bandwidth. So the coherence length, that should be an f, not a nu. I changed my slides from nu to f. Then we can express the coherence length in terms of the bandwidth. And quite often we express not the frequency bandwidth of a light source, but we express the the width in uh, wavelength space. So saying that a laser is not perfectly monochromatic, saying that it's not exactly a single frequency or the same thing. There's some spread in frequency, there's some spread in wavelength. So we can talk about the line width, delta lambda, and relate that to the bandwidth, delta f. So we can use the fact that the speed of light is the wavelength times frequency to get the relationship for the line width and bandwidth. If we differentiate this expression, the left side is a constant. So it differentiates to zero. On the right side, we have to use a chain rule. So we have lambda times df plus f times d lambda. So we can rearrange this and solve for example d lambda over lambda equals minus df over f. So solving for d lambda, we get lambda delta f over f. And we can replace f with c over lambda and get an expression for the line width that depends on the center wavelength, the speed of light, and the bandwidth. So using our relationship between the bandwidth and the coherence length, we can write the line width of the light is related to the coherence length by lambda squared over the coherence length. Okay, so for example, um, so the coherence length is the time it takes the phase, or the length of uh, propagation for which the phase slips um, on average pi. Due to the frequency bandwidth. So, if we consider, for example, white light that has a bandwidth from 400 nanometers to 700 nanometers, the coherence length is the distance the light has to travel such that a 400 nanometer wave becomes pi out of phase with a 700 nanometer wave. And that time is about one and a half femtoseconds. That corresponds to about one micron, or about two wavelengths of light. So we'll calculate that in a minute. But um, that's why we typically say that white light is incoherent. The coherence length is very short. A gas discharge lamp, such as the yellow sodium lights that illuminate the, the streets, have a typical bandwidth of about a gigahertz. So their coherence length is about 30 centimeters. So you can see interference effects from a gas discharge lamp as long as the path length difference between the beams that are interfering is less than about a foot. And then a helium neon laser or a uh, that's not a helium neon laser, that's the red line in cadmium um, that has a line width of about 6.5 picometers. That corresponds to a uh, coherence length of about 0.41 meters. A A neodymium YAG laser has a very narrow line width and a coherence length of a few kilometers. So that's sort of the scale from white light, a very wide bandwidth source to a very narrow bandwidth source. So let's do an example where we calculate one of these. Let's calculate the coherence length of white light. So white light goes from 400 to 700 nanometers. So its center wavelength, we'll call 550 nanometers, which by the way is yellow. So we'll plug in for the wavelength 550. And we'll plug in for the line width. 300 nanometers. It's the range from 400 to 700. And so when we evaluate this, 550 squared over 300, we get about 1,000 nanometers or one micron, which we said was about two wavelengths. So you only see interference from white light when the path length difference is less than a micron or so. So you can see interference effects in soap bubbles or very thin films where you have just a few 100 nanometers, no more, of thickness that the light is going back and forth in. But you don't see interference effects in a pane of glass. The world will look very different. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know what's kind of interesting here is, uh say that white light has a bandwidth from 400 to 700 nanometers, but the light from the sun is not I mean that's what we can see. Right? but there is ultraviolet all right? we get sunburns, there's infrared, it produces heat. So the light from the sun is not just constrained to that 300 nanometer window. that's really just what we can see. So this calculation is a bit skewed, but the peak is the peak of the sunlight is in the yellow, which is, is why our eyes presumably are most sensitive in yellow so you know we're defining this is the solar irradiance, the spectral irradiance I guess I'll write it as a function of wavelength, this is the wavelength it's not a sharp turn on and a sharp turn off but the peak is in the visible and so you you could define that width as like the full width half max or um, some fraction of the peak as the the boundaries. And so it's this is an approximation, but it gives us an order of magnitude value. Okay, let's do another example that shows how you might measure the coherence length. Um, The way you typically measure the wavelength of light, or one common way, is to send it through a prism. And a prism separates the light based on wavelength, bends the different frequency wave arrays at different angles due to the dispersion of the glass. And so you could plot the intensity spectrum observed over here on, for example, a CCD or an array detector. And the positions at which you detect intensity correspond to the wavelengths that are contained in the light. So if we had a light beam that had just two wavelength components, we'd expect there to only be two spots on the CCD that get illuminated. So typically you need to calibrate this device. You have to send in a couple known wavelengths. And if you do that, you can say what wavelength different points on this correspond to, and then you can assume it's linear and read off the uh, wavelength of any points in between. So let's say we send uh, two of the different lines from a helium-neon laser. One, the red line at 632.8 and the orange line at 612 nanometers onto a prism and we locate the spots that that laser produces on a screen. There's the red spot, there's the orange spot. So we mark those points on a screen and then we replace the laser with an LED, and we shine an LED into the prism, and it produces a spot that's smeared out like this. So what's that telling us? There's two things we can, two pieces of information we can gain from this. It depends on the yeah, so it has a wavelength distribution. If This is essentially a plot of wavelength, <coughs> and it's got intensity at a variety of wavelengths. And it also tells us the center wavelength, right where the center is. Okay, so if we want to figure out the coherence length, those are the two things we need to know, the center wavelength and the spread. Right, so we can calibrate this. Here's the 632.8 nanometer light. Here's the orange one at 612. So I've drawn in these lines already so that each line corresponds to a half a nanometer. So I'll put in some dark lines that correspond every 10 nanometers. So here's 620. 621 is the lower edge. 622, 623, 624 is the upper edge. So the line width of this is about three nanometers. And the center frequency is about 622 and a half. So our expression for the coherence length requires knowledge of those two parameters, We plug them in and we get about 129 microns. So an LED is more coherent than white light. It has a much narrower spread in wavelengths, which is why LEDs appeared colored, not white. Um, But the coherence length is much less than that of a laser. So this is an example of what we might call a partially coherent source. Okay, if you interfere two beams, for instance, that go through a thin film or maybe go through a very thin optic, you could conceivably have the path length difference correspond to about that coherence length. So how do we treat that? Do we treat it as coherent? Do we treat it as incoherent or some combination of the two? So of course the answer is some combination of the two. So we can talk now about partial coherence. We've only really considered the cases of totally coherent and totally incoherent up until now. But let's return to this picture of a wave train where the phase gets randomized. And now let's consider that the length of time between successive randomizations as being uniform. So that every length of time tau, the phase gets randomized. So that's not what you're likely to have in a, in a real light source. You're more likely to have a, a, some distribution around an average coherence time. Okay, but it'll be a little easier to analyze this situation where the uh, phase randomizations occur at exact uh, exact times that, uh, that we can understand. So if you plot the phase of these beams relative to some reference, first look at this black line. This black line represents the phase of the wave plotted in the top as a function of time. So there's some constant phase, so that's some constant phase offset if you write this wave as... E equals E naught cosine omega t plus phi. It's this phase offset that we're plotting. It's not the the change in the phase as a function of time that comes from the, the oscillations at an optical frequency, the phase offset. So the phase offset is constant up until the first randomization, and then it jumps to some random value, and then it's constant until this next randomization, in which case it jumps to another value. And so we see this this function that's a series of straight line segments. Each one has a random value between 0 and 2 pi. Now, if we take this wave train and we split it into two paths and we recombine it such that the two paths are delayed relative to each other, let's let them be delayed by an amount Well, I'll call it delta L. So if this is plotted as a function of Uh, position, if they're delayed by an amount delta L that corresponds to um, some length relative to the coherence length then the phase difference between the two beams when it's the same wave wave train adding up the phase difference is going to be zero so if I take this black line and I shift it to the left, and I draw it as a dotted line here. And then I plot the phase difference between the black line and the dotted line. Phase difference is zero up until this point. And then it's some finite value over the time which corresponds to the delay between the two pulses. So the phase difference jumps up and has some phase difference. And then once both waves have the same wave train interfering the phase difference is going to be zero up until this point where this discontinuity has reached one of the waves but not the other one yet and so there's some phase difference now between the beams so these little these little um, spikes on my plot of the phase difference represent the regions of time where one wave train is interfering with a different wave train or wave pulse. And those are going to add up with some arbitrary phase. So they could be in phase, they could be out of phase, but there be no particular phase relationship between successive regions here. But the regions where the phase difference is shown as zero are those where we have the same part of the wave train interfering with itself. And so the interference that occurs here and the interference that occurs here, and here, and here are all going to have the same relative uh, phase difference between the interfering beams. And if you have constructive interference here, you'll have constructive interference here, and here, and here. If you have destructive, you'll have destructive interference here, and here, and here, and here. Okay, so these regions are coherent. So let me see. I think on the next slide, a better description of this. We can describe this length as the coherence length. And that represents, oh, I guess when I drew this, I didn't see this negative pulse here. But the distance from one pulse to the next is the coherence length. For the moment, ignore this pulse and pretend that these are two successive pulses. I, literally, I didn't see that when I drew this. Um, So the distance between pulses is the coherence length. The fraction of the time over which the waves are coherent we'll call gamma, little gamma. And for reasons that will be clear in a minute, I'm going to write that as the absolute value of gamma. And so the fraction of time over which the waves are incoherent is 1 minus gamma. Then what I can do is I can say that if I have two waves that each have an intensity of i naught, and they add up coherently, I get interference. And if they interfere destructively, I get an intensity of 0. If they interfere constructively, I get the electric fields adding. And I get an intensity that's four times that of e- either individual beam. All right, and so, the intensity of the coherent interference can go anywhere from 0 to 4 times I0. And if we compare that to the intensity from incoherent beams adding up, if you have two beams, each of intensity I0, they're incoherent and they add up, the incoherent intensity will be twice that of either beam. So we can ask what the fringe visibility is. The fringe visibility is the maximum intensity you see minus the minimum divided by the maximum plus the minimum. So if this is, these are your interference fringes. This axis on the bottom is 0. The max minus the min is this point minus this point. So the maximum intensity you're going to see comes from observing constructive interference during the coherent fraction of, uh, of time. So 4i0 is the intensity you observe during a fraction of time gamma when the waves are coherent. And when they're incoherent, you observe an intensity of 2 i naught. And the fraction of time that they're incoherent is 1 minus gamma. And so when we add those up, we get 2 plus 2 gamma times i0. If we compare that to the minimum intensity we see down here, the minimum intensity we see is just from the incoherent light. So When the coherent light is adding up destructively, then the minimum intensity is just going to be 2i0. And that occurs for a fraction of time 1 minus gamma. That's when we have the incoherent light adding up. Okay, So we have 1 minus gamma times 2i0. Or 2 minus 2 gamma times i0. So we plug these values for the maximum intensity and the minimum intensity into our expression for the visibility we get we get two plus two gamma plus two minus two gamma i'm sorry in the numerator we have two plus two gamma minus two minus two gamma that's four gamma in the denominator we get two plus two gamma plus two minus two gamma which is four the fours cancel and we get gamma as the fringe visibility. So if gamma represented the fraction of time over which the light was coherent, then gamma also gives the visibility. And so if we look at this plot of the interference fringes, we can say that if we have an average intensity of i, i naught, or we'll just call it 1, an average intensity of 1, then the coherent light can add or subtract from that average. And the amount it can add or subtract is gamma. And the amount of light that's left when the coherent light is adding destructively is 1 minus gamma. So you can also work out from this diagram the fringe visibility. And again, you get that it's gamma. So if gamma equals 1, that means is the light is always coherent. The coherence length is infinitely long. The light is always coherent. Then, as gamma equals 1, these fringes go from 2 to 0. You have perfect visibility. And the visibility is 1. When gamma equals 0, that means the light is always incoherent. And the amplitude of these fringes is 0. And the visibility is 0. Gregor? So we're talking about partial coherence, um, and now let's explore that gamma function a little bit more, and we'll see why we had this absolute value on it. So let's introduce a function called the um, called the mutual well. We'll call it the cross-correlation function. We'll use capital gamma to define the cross-correlation function. And we'll look at the correlation between a function f and a function g. So that's what this subscript means. So the term correlation suggests we're looking for how much these functions are alike. So one way to measure how much they're alike is if we multiply them together, if they're the same, we're just squaring the function makes it positive. And so if we integrate it over the entire length of the function, so over all time, if it's a function of time, or over all x, if it's a function of x, if it's always positive, we're going to get some positive value. Right? But if, if we take two functions that are different, and we multiply them together, we would expect that at some points it will be positive, and some points it will be negative. And if, they have no, if they're not alike at all, then there will be no correlation between how often it's positive and how often it's negative. When we average over the whole thing, we should get zero. So gamma is a measure of how uh, correlated two functions are. Mark? Um, F and G both have to be uh, cyclic functions? for that to happen, or can it be any random function? They should be zero mean. Okay. So you should subtract the average value before you do that. Okay, so we'll define the correlation function of tau as comparing function f of t and function g of t that's been advanced by a time tau. So if these functions are completely uncorrelated, it won't matter how much you shift one relative to the other, they'll always be uncorrelated. But if, for example, these are the same function, if you multiply them together, you're always going to get a positive value. But if you shift them, then it's possible for the shifted function to be negative when the other one is positive and so as you increase the amount that you shift one function relative to the other you reduce generally reduce the amount that they're correlated okay so we can write this correlation function as a real function expressed like this or we can use this relationship we, we developed when we talked about phasors that said the average value of two functions multiplied together could be expressed as um, the product of the phasor of one times the complex conjugate of the other. So we can write a complex correlation function in terms of the phasors, the phasor functions. Okay, we're going to use that complex function, which is why we had the absolute value around our value of gamma because we had a a complex function. We wanted a real real value. OK, so this represents the complex cross-correlation function between functions f and g. Quite frequently, we're only interested in how much a function is correlated to itself when shifted. So if we cross-correlate a function with itself, just replace the function g with the function f in this expression, And we can write the self-correlation function, like so. And clearly, the value for this correlation function depends on how large the function f is. If we multiply the function f by a scalar, the cross-correlation function gets multiplied by that scalar squared. So we might want to sort of normalize this function. And so we can define a normalized coherence function. Well, first let's look at the normalized um, self-coherence function. It's the correlation function divided by the correlation function at time tau equals 0. So if tau equals 0, the self-correlation function is just the function squared. It's the average value of the function squared. So this is the average value of the function squared, and this is the correlation. And so now if we multiply our function by a scalar, the correlation function, let's say we multiply it by a, the correlation function increases by a squared, but so does this term in the denominator. So this becomes normalized it doesn't depend on the scale of the function f it only depends on how similar f the function f is with itself when it's delayed by a time tau and we can generalize this to describe the uh, normalized cross correlation function but now we'll divide not by the correlation function at 0 but the the geometric mean of the correlation of f and the correlation of g evaluated at time t equals 0 Okay, so this is the function that we're going to use and we're just going to call this gamma and that's the gamma that we saw earlier and let's see how we use that. If the function that we're considering is an electric field then we can write the coherence function, the self-coherence function as the electric field times the electric field at some later instant in time divided by the correlation at at tau equals 0. And if we look at our expression for the total irradiance of two fields that are adding up, so we have field E1 and E2, we add up those fields and then we square them, and we take the time average, and there are some constants that convert that into an irradiance, which are really not going to be important in in this analysis, but I wrote them in there anyways. We can write this as e1 squared plus e2 squared plus this cross term. So the average value of E1 squared is just one half E1 naught. The average value of E2 squared is just one half times the amplitude of wave E2 squared. And then we have this cross term. Okay, so epsilon v times e1 squared, this is just the irradiance of field one. This is the irradiance of field two. And then this is the interference term. So if we assume that E1 and E2 are equal in magnitude, and that each one produces an irradiance of I0, then we can write this first term as I0. The second term is I0, so we have a 2I0. And then this term, I'll write out, we have 2 epsilon Vp times E1 E2 star. And that looks like, um, let's also assume that E1 and E2 are two beams that come from the same laser, are split, and then one gets delayed relative to the other by time tau before they're recombined. So I have E1 of t, and I have E2 of T plus tau. So now you can see this looks like the coherence function. And If I divide this by i naught and then I multiply it by i naught, The epsilon Vp times the magnitude of the electric field squared gives me an intensity. So I'm normalizing that by the intensity of a single beam. So I0, remember, was equal to epsilon Vp of E1 squared. So I can plug that in. So the epsilon Vp's cancel e1 and e2 have the same value. Let me call it e0. Then you can see that this is equal to 2i0. It's so the 2, the i0. And then this is just my gamma of tau, my coherence function. right? There is my coherence function. And that's what this term, this interference term, is equal to. So I have a 2i0 for the individual fields independently. And then I have 2i0 times gamma. 2i0 times gamma. This is a complex number. So in order to express the, the real function that this represents, I take the real part of it. So I've written the real part of gamma. So gamma tells me how coherent the fields are. What is gamma for perfectly coherent radiation? It's one. Perfectly incoherent? What is it? Zero. Right? So if if you have perfectly incoherent radiation, this is zero. And the total intensity of two beams that each have an intensity of I naught is two i naught. If it's perfectly correlated, or if it's uh, perfectly coherent, then gamma equals 1, or has a magnitude of 1. And the total intensity is 4 I0. Four times out of either individual beam, which is how we started out. That's assuming that they're adding up constructively. Of course, they could add up destructively, constructively or destructively. And that would just change the sign on this interference term. Or at any phase in between. So we can actually express this function gamma. We set its magnitude equal to visibility. And now its phase should represent the phase difference of the interfering beams. So if we call that phase difference delta, and if we consider perfectly coherent light, then V equals 1. And when I, I don't have to go back, I've got the expression right here when I plug this value in for gamma, if V equals 1 the real part of E to the I delta is cosine of delta this becomes 1 plus cosine of delta or my full expression is 2I0 uh, naught 2 2I0 cosine delta that 2 i naught cosine delta was the interference term we had for two equal intensity beams Okay, so the gamma tells us something about the interference condition and the amount of interference which is coherent. And we call that the coherence function. So for the example I showed, where our wave was made up of coherent pulses which were all equal equal length, Then we can plot this coherence function as a function of tau. When tau equals 0, we've got a wave that looks like this multiplied by the exact same wave. Right? Those are coherent everywhere. Even though the phase changes, different points, the relative phase between the two beams that are interfering is always the same. And so at tau equals 0, the coherence function is 1. It has, an, has a magnitude of 1. Okay. Any light that you take, if you split it apart and recombine it, and both beams have traveled the same distance, it will interfere, co- construct, it will h- interfere coherently. Okay, because the path length difference is 0, and regardless of what the coherence length is, 0 is less than that value. So all coherence functions for any light source will start off as 1 at tau equals 0. When tau equals the coherence length, that's the length of time over which it takes a coherence function to drop. Whether it drops to 0 or some fraction of the way to 0 depends on the distribution of these phase disturbances. In our case where they were equally spread, so that this distance... Was the coherence time. This distance was also the coherence time. Then, if we take this light and we shift it by one coherence time, then we've always got one wave train interfering with a different wave train. So, there will never be any coherence between those two. So, once we've shifted by one full coherence length, or one full coherence time, the coherence goes down to zero. And for any shift greater than that, the coherence will be zero. We shift by less than a full coherence time. The fraction of a coherence time over which we've shifted is the fraction of time over which they can add up constructively, or coherently. And So we just get this simple linear relationship from full coherence to full incoherence. As we take two Two representations of the same wave and shift them. So that's what the coherence, that magnitude of the coherence function looks like. The actual, the real part of the coherence function would look like this its magnitude decreases from one to zero. And the real part gives us the interference fringes. So this is plotted, uh, let's see, if the function is expressed as a function of tau, then this would be plotted as a function of tau. If it's plotted as a function of delta L, then this would be plotted as a function of coherence length. And the relationship between tau and coherence length, or T and and L, is just uh, T equals L over C. Now, if these discontinuities don't occur at regular intervals, but they have some random spacing, but they have an average, there's an average length for the coherence pulses, then you'd expect this coherence function to look more like this, like this Gaussian distribution. So I won't derive that, but I can motivate it a little bit by saying that if each, if each coherent wave train can have a random length then it's possible to have wave trains of arbitrary length. Just the longer you get beyond the average value, the less probable it is. So there will always be some probability that two waves separated by any given distance can interfere coherently. So this function never goes fully to zero. And so here the coherence length isn't defined as the time it takes it to go to zero, or the length over which it goes to zero, but it would be some when the coherence is dropped to, say, half. That would be be how you define the coherence length. Okay, so any questions on coherence? Then you can start spring break 10 minutes early.